Okay, so I figured I should continue with my whole theme of looking into stuff that we've all talked about many, many, many times and figure I should look at it just a little further. So um, today we're going to do God's view or yours view. And we're going to try to figure out which view we're going to choose to live with, our view or God's view. Um, so we're going to look into what it means to be blessed according to what he says. Until we can change our views from God's view, we will always live beneath our privileges. Now, what he says it to be blessed is far different than what we usually consider being blessed. Because it actually is quite contradictory to, uh, to the society's view of being in a good place. So we have to make a choice to stick with our views or change our minds to God's views. It is often easier said than done, but if we want to be in the will of God, then we must allow our minds and hearts to be transformed into what God wants us to be. Walking in his will has been outlined for us so we don't have to guess or play it by ear. If we could just follow the simple things that the good book told us to do, we really wouldn't be all that confused because it really is right there. So we're going to look at Matthew 5, 1 through 12. And we're going to go verse by verse to make sure we grasp everything that is in each verse. Remember, these are Christ's actual words that he taught. So it's imperative that we take them literally and try to attain to them. So Matthew 5 and 1, it says, Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. And I thought it was interesting when I was looking at the commentary for that, that in the, the Jewish faith, when their rabbi spoke to them, they always sat down. So they were just with the people. So he went and climbed the mountainside because the crowds were getting bigger and bigger. And then when he got to the top, he sat down and taught them. No lording over, but just let me talk to you. We never do that. We always act like we gotta be, you know, like over. That's just a gesture of humility to sit down. Um, so the first one he says, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he started with these blessings as just, let me tell you what I think it is for you to have a good life. Which is interesting that when he starts his teaching, it's not about him. It's not about you follow me, I'm the one, I'm the Messiah, I'm this great thing. But he's teaching them, this is how you have to live. Because he was concerned about how they lived. That's interesting because we focus so much on trying to get our point across and persuade people and make people do this and do that, where he was just, this is how you have to live and this, then you will be, you'll be blessed. That's all. So when it says blessed, it is saying happy, to be envied, and spiritually prosperous with life joy and satisfaction in God's favor and salvation regardless of your outward conditions. He wanted us to be happy. He wanted us to be so happy that other people would look at us and be envious. 
No, they got something. To really be spiritually prosperous. Because, of course, his whole thing was about us gaining spiritual prosperity. And we flipped the word blessed. That's terrible. So poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit is to have a humble opinion of ourselves. To be sensible that we are sinners and have no righteousness of our own. To be willing to be saved only by the rich grace and mercy of God. And we have taken on our religiousness as, self, as uh, self-serving. It's about, look how religious I am today. Look how saved I've been. Oh, I'm not really saved by his grace. I'm saved because I didn't keep myself together. So all the victory goes to me instead of to him. So a lot of us in the church, supposedly in the church, we're not poor in spirit. We're just full of ourselves. It's about me. It's about me being saved. It's about me keeping myself. I had the victory all week. Let me run around the room because I've had the victory because I've kept myself. No, it was by his grace and mercy that we continue on. And only by the grace and mercy to be willing to be where God places us. Poor in spirit, to be willing to be wherever God places you. To bear what he lays on you. To go where he bids you. And to die when he commands. To be willing to be in his hands and to feel that we deserve no favor from him. It is opposed to pride and vanity and self-ambition. Poor in spirit. That's a whole lot in being poor in the spirit. If we become poor in the spirit, then the kingdom of heaven is ours. Yet, it is our choice. Will you choose pride, vanity, and self-ambition, or will you choose the kingdom of heaven? So when he says theirs is the kingdom of heaven, it means we have special amenities for entering the kingdom of heaven and of becoming Christians here on earth, and we shall enter heaven afterwards. So the kingdom is mine now, and then he's making these special amenities for me to have it afterwards. Yet we often choose pride and vanity and self-ambition, yet proclaiming we're so humble. So if you don't, if you're not poor in spirit, then the kingdom of heaven is not yours. Number four, it says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now this who mourn is capable of two meanings. It could be blessed are those who are afflicted with the loss of friends or possessions, or it can mean they who mourn over sin are blessed. As Christ came to preach repentance, to induce people to mourn over their sins and to forsake them, it is probable that he had the later particularly in view. At the same time, it is true that the gospel only can give true comfort to those who are afflicted. 
But the majority of the commentary and the theologians believe that when he said those who mourn, he was talking about us mourning over our sin. Not over the death of people or the loss of possessions. It was, we were supposed to be sad and cry over the fact we've sinned against God. Those that mourn thus shall be comforted. So those that grieve over sin, that sorrow that they have committed it, and are afflicted and wounded that they have offended God, shall find comfort in the gospel. Though the merciful Savior, those sins may be forgiven, in him the weary and heavy laden soul shall find peace. And the presence of the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, shall sustain them here. And in heaven, all their tears shall be wiped away. So if you mourn your sins, you will have them forgiven. You will find peace and rest. You will have the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, abide in you. And you then have heaven as well. So you have to decide if your sins are worth mourning after. Remember, we only mourn what is lost. So you can't mourn over sins that you practice, that you constantly participate in. You're not mourning those. If you're still holding on to your sins, then you have not mourned over them. And God cannot then comfort you. Verse 5, it says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Meekness is patience in the reception of injuries. It is neither meanness nor a surrender of our rights nor cowardice, but it is the opposite of sudden anger, of malice, of long-harbored vengeance. Vengeance is a hard thing to get rid of because we want people to pay. And we want people to pay at our hands. That's the hardest part of letting go of stuff. I need to see you bleed. Just a little bit. Meekness is the reception of injuries with a belief that God will vindicate us. Vengeance is his, he will repay. We step in his place when we try to do what he has promised to do. He said he will repay. That takes faith for us to step back and wait for him to repay. But I'm messing up the repayment when I keep stepping in where God needs to step. I don't even allow him to do his work because I keep getting in the way. Now, we should believe that God can vindicate us far better than we can vindicate ourselves. And maybe what we think we're going to punish them with is small compared to what God will punish them with. If you look at all the scriptures, it talks about how he feels about the evil ones, about what he would do to the ones that offend. They're not light. He's quite harsh when he talks about that. Like Andre said last night, a breaking of the teeth. Now, we can't really go break folks' teeth because, you know, you can go to jail and all that kind of stuff. But so we try to stay away from physical, you know, harm. We want to do the physical harm, but we try to stay away from it. Uh, but 
Imagine what that would be like for God to break your teeth, for God to silence you to where you want to speak, but you can't. But then we step in his way. He's like, wait, I can get him. Shut up, sit down, let me do my thing. I'll repay. Meekness produces peace. It is proof of true greatness of soul. It comes from a heart too great to be moved by little or big insults. It looks upon those who offer them with pity. He that is constantly ruffled, that suffers every little insult or injury, to let it throw him off his guard and to raise a storm of passions within is at the mercy of every mortal that chooses to disturb him. We know this is not of God because one is not in peace when they are easily ruffled. This is why he needs us to have meekness. Because if I'm allowing everybody to move me and sway me and get me upset and get my heart racing and, and be ready to cut somebody out and fight, I have lost my peace. That is not where God wants me to be. I need to sit back and let God do his work on them. He says we shall inherit the earth. If you're meek, you will inherit this earth. Now that doesn't mean that the meek will own great property or have many lands or riches, but that they will possess special blessings. When our Savior uses this language here, he means that the meek shall be received into his kingdom and partake of its blessings here on earth and of the glories of the heavenlies. The value of meekness, even in regard to worldly property and success in life, is often exhibited in the scriptures. Look at the Proverbs. It is also seen in common life that a meek, patient, mild man is the most prospered. An impatient and quarrelsome man creates enemies spends time in disputes and clashes rather than in sober, honest production, and is harassed, vexed, and unsuccessful in all that he does. Watch people that are always ruffled, always ready to fight, always got a complaint. Don't nobody want to be around you? And even if you gain some prosperity, nobody wants to fool with you because you are a person that people don't like. It's irritating. First Timothy 4 and 8, it says, But godliness has a value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. God was not just concerned about us getting to heaven, but he wanted us to have goodness here on earth. In summation, you believe that God is going to protect you so no need to panic and get to acting foolish. That's meekness. There ain't no sense in me getting all upset. All right, he got it, he got my back. See, but that goes into faith. Do I believe that he really is gonna take care of me? It goes into what we talked about last night. If you are getting yourself into a bunch of trials, if you are perplexed, do you believe the but? that I'm not going to be crushed, and I'm not going to be destroyed, and I'm not going to be killed. It's faith. Verse 6, 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Hunger and thirst here are expressive of strong desire. Nothing would better express the strong desire which we ought to feel to obtain righteousness than hunger and thirst. No needs are so eager. None so domineeringly demand a response as hunger and thirst. They occur daily, and they need to be dealt with daily. So an ardent desire for anything is often represented in the scriptures by hunger and thirst. A desire for the blessings of pardon and peace, a deep sense of sin and want and wretchedness is also represented by thirsting. So are you hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Is it a need so deep in you that you feel like you will die if you don't fill it? Because if you can live without the righteousness, then he can't fill you up. And I think we wonder why we're so void of God because we don't hunger and thirst after him. We actually are just like, mm-hmm. It's not a deep need. It's just, if it comes, I'll fill it. If not, I'll move on. But hunger, we all get hungry. And we all want to feel the hunger. And if you're very, very thirsty, you must drink. Is your desire for God the same? So he says they shall be filled. They shall be satisfied as a hungry man is when supplied with food, or a thirsty man when supplied with drink. Those who are perishing for want of righteousness, those who feel that they are lost sinners and strongly desire to be holy, shall be thus satisfied. Never was there a desire to be holy which God was not willing to gratify. So if you're looking and thirsting for, for holiness, for righteousness, God is going to fill you. He is going to satisfy you. And the gospel of Christ has made provisions to satisfy all who truly desire to be holy. So not one of us have an excuse to say, well, he didn't help me out on that. When it comes to holiness and godliness and righteousness, if that is your hunger and desire, you shall be filled. No doubt. No way he can't. So when we lack our holiness, it's because we don't really want the holiness. When we lack being righteous, it's because I don't really want to be righteous. The question becomes, what do you really hunger and thirst after? Is it really God and his character, or what you want and desire outside of God? For either God can fill you with true nourishment, or you can allow Satan to fill you with junk food. And a lot of us are just full of junk. Junk looking like Jesus. That's, that's ugly. And we didn't become fat and out of shape. And just full of junk. Because we rather would have Satan fill us with a pseudo Christianity, with a pseudo 
character of Christ, then allow Christ to fill us with true nourishment, to teach us how to really be like him, to give up ourselves and take on him. And we wonder why we're dying. We wonder why we're having heart attacks, because our hearts are breaking, because I'm full of the devil's junk food. I'm wondering why I, I got hypertension, because I didn't allow the devil to feed me a bunch of mess that's killing me. And I'm sitting here knowing I got hypertension, knowing I got coronary disease, full of diabetes, and I'm still going to do just the opposite of what God said to do. <laughs> and then I can't figure out why the Lord ain't, why he ain't blessing me. Because if, if, if I were to hunger and thirst after him, he would fill me with the good stuff. It's our fault. And we blame him. Bless me, Jesus, bless me. I didn't told you what it takes to be blessed. I'm not going to bless your craziness. It's not going to happen. And this is why we've created false ways to be blessed. Well, this is what it means to be blessed. Things I can do that have nothing to do with him. Because only God can give me the kingdom. Only God can let me inherit the earth. Only God can truly fill me. So I'm like, uh, let me do it myself. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. That is, those who are so affected by the suffering of others as to be inclined to alleviate them. This is given as an evidence of godliness. And it is said that they who show mercy to others shall obtain it. This should be done with a wish to glorify God, that is in obedience to his commandments, and with a desire that he should be honored, and with a feeling that we are benefiting one of his creatures. Then he will regard it as done unto him, and he will reward us. God is telling us who he is if we look at 2 Samuel 22 through 26. Chapter 22, verse 26 through 28, I'm sorry. Our aim is to cultivate the character of Christ, okay? And this is what he's saying, to be merciful. He says, you are merciful to the merciful. You show your perfections to the blameless. To those who are pure, you show yourself pure. But you destroy those who are evil. You will save those in trouble, but you bring down the haughty, for you watch their every move. But a lot of times when we claim we're being merciful, it's unto us. It's like, let me show you what I can do. In um, one of these book, books I, I read long, long years ago, um, Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, which was a big deal for a while. And in one of the things of the, because uh, it's just a book of actually a bunch of assignments. 
And one of the assignments was to do something kind for someone, but you couldn't tell what you did. Just a random thing, but you couldn't tell anybody what you did. That was so hard. Because I, not that the only person I wanted to tell really was Andre, but I, I can't tell. So then I had to think, why am I, I mean, why did I do it? I mean, was it to gain somebody saying, oh, you're a nice, kind person? Or why did I do it? You know, and it was interesting. It's hard to do. Because we really want to be applauded for our goodness. So when I'm helping people out, I'm doing this, I want just somebody just to, not a huge shout out, but just a little one just to say, I was nice today, you know? And it's hard to sit there and be silent. But I'm supposed to let God reward me, not look for man to reward me. So when I'm looking for man to reward me, it's a scripture that says, and I don't know where it's at, but it's a scripture that says that, you know, if you speak about what you're doing for people, there's your reward. That's all you got. You didn't tie my hand. I can't help you no more. You can't get my reward. So we have to keep in mind, when you are showing mercy, it must come from a pure heart. Not just a look of trying to appear godly. He really does know the difference. Because remember, he's looking at the heart. So if I'm merciful to someone else, he's going to be merciful to me. If I take on purity, God's going to show me his purity. What does that look like? To be able to see him in his just pure form? Ooh. And it, it goes on when it says, you show your perfections to the blameless. So if I can get myself cleaned up, I'm going to see how perfect he really is. I haven't been able to see his perfections because I've got so much blame on me. So it's a part of himself he can't even reveal to me yet because I ain't got myself together yet. I mean, I would like to see the pure perfection of Christ. That, that has to be awful beautiful. And then remember, because he goes always, and whenever he talks about his goodness, he always generally throws in, I'll destroy the evil. Don't worry about it. I'm going to take care of them people. I'm going to take care of them. I see what they're doing. Don't think I don't see my eyes are open. As he watches you, he's watching everybody. Don't be destroyed. Verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure in heart. That is whose minds, motives, and principles are pure who seek not only to have the external actions correct, but whose desires is to be holy in heart, and you accomplish it. Not intentions, not I was trying to, but you actually accomplish the purity you're trying to get to. Pure in heart, minds, motives, 
and principles. Not just the outward looking right, because we like that. Let me look right. Let me say I haven't done X, Y, and Z, but I'm just filthy. My heart's not pure. I'm not going to see God then. You can look like you saved. You can look like you're pure. But if your mind and motives are not pure, he says you can't see me. They shall see God. In this place, it is spoken of as a special favor. Special favor. To see God means to be his friends and favorites and to dwell with him in his kingdom. Don't you want to be the Lord's friend? One of his favorites. Will you dig deep in your heart and mind and soul and cleanse the impurities so that you can see God face to face and not another? As Christians, our aim is to see God, but if you are not pure in heart, you will not see him regardless of who tells you you're saved. We be looking for other people to tell us we saved. And your opinion don't really matter. Only opinion matters is crisis. Everybody in the world can think I'm a good Christian. The best going. But if God looks at me and says you are not pure, you're not going to see me. Can't see me. You're going to see another. Ooh. It is God that knows the heart and every secret thing. Get right with him, for he is our only judge. Pure in art. You get to see me. Verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Peacemakers, those who strive to prevent contention, strife, and war, who use their influence to reconcile opposing parties and to prevent lawsuits and hostilities in families and neighborhoods. Every man can do this, and no man is more like God than he who does it. There ought not to be unlawful and intrusive interference when it is none of our business. But when there is no danger of interference, every man has many opportunities of reconciling opposing parties. Now take note, a peacemaker is not one who pushes stuff under the carpet and tries to acquire fake peace, but one who pushes for understanding on each side and honesty. Remember, Christ wants us to be pure in heart, so that gives no room for falsity and duplicity or deceit. So a lot of times we scream, we'll just be a peacemaker, and people are telling you just to sweep it under the carpet. We don't talk about it. Well, let's let it go. No, that's not a peacemaker. You have not made peace. We're talking about true peace. Peace where I have honestly put out my problems. You have honestly heard my disputes. We have had confrontation. Confrontation simply means face-to-face -face interaction. This is being a peacemaker. When Christ wouldn't talk to those he opposed, he wasn't saying, well, just forget that. Let's, you're saying let's put it under the carpet and let's keep going. He, let's deal with this. 
there's a problem. God wants us to be peacemakers. He said, then I'll, I'll call you the children of God, those who resemble God, who manifest a spirit like his. Is your spirit like Jesus's? He is the author of peace. And all those who endeavor to promote peace must be like him. Then we are worthy to be called his children. You can't make peace. You can't be honest. You're not his child. Call yourself what you want. But he says, if you're a placemaker, you will then be my child. A little different than just getting baptized and coming up. Coming sitting on the pew every week. Blessed are you. Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. To persecute means literally to pursue, follow after, as one does a flying enemy. Here it means to vex or oppose one, oppress one on account of his religion. The persecutor will injure your name, reputation, property, or endanger or take your life on account of your religious opinions. Now it has to be for righteousness sake because they are righteous is why you got persecuted or because you're the friends of God. We are not to seek persecution. We are not to provoke it by strange sentiments or conduct, by violating the laws of civil society or by modes of speech that are unnecessarily offensive to others. So a lot of us think we're being persecuted. I didn't got persecuted because I'm a Christian. You got persecuted because you was rude. And actually, God don't even consider it persecution because it wasn't for righteousness sake. You was up there just running your mouth, offending people. And now don't nobody like you. It ain't because you saved. It ain't because you a Christian. It's because you're a jerk. Oh, gosh. <laughs> But if in the honest effort to be Christians and to live the life of Christians, others persecute and berate us, we are to consider this to be a blessing. It is an evidence that we are the children of God and that he will defend us. It says all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And then again, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They have evidence that they are Christians and they will be brought to heaven. Verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. When men insult you, revile you, reproach you, call you by evil and contemptuous names, ridicule, ridicule you because you are Christian, 
though the contempt of the world is not in itself desirable, yet it is blessed to tread in the footsteps of Jesus, to imitate his example, and even to suffer for his sake. That's what he's saying. If, if it happens for my sake, well, that's a blessing. You're walking in my path. He says, then all manner of evil against you falsely. An emphasis has to be laid on the word falsely in this passage. It is not blessed to have evil spoken of us if we deserve it. You sitting here doing vile stuff that's completely against the Lord. That he, nothing about his character was amplified in the stuff you did. And you want to claim, oh, blessed is the man that's persecuted. Not talking about you. You know, but if we deserve it not, then we should consider this as not a misfortune. We should take it patiently and show how much the Christian under the consciousness of innocence can bear. That I can take it because I know it's false. That it's okay for you to say that about me because it's not true anyway. What am I getting myself all ruffled about? 1 Peter 4 and 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on his behalf. You can't suffer as being a little something and act like it's for the glory of God because you happen to get baptized in Jesus' name and come to church every week. It's not to the glory of God. You were busybody talking about everybody's business, running folks down. I was just trying to pray for him. You wasn't praying for nobody. So he says, for my sake, because you are attached to me, because you were Christians, we are not to seek such things. We are not to do things to offend others, to treat them harshly or unkindly, or to encourage fighting. Think about most of the witnessing you hear people do. It encourages fights. It encourages offense. We're harsh. We're unkind. Send people straight to hell? I ain't died yet. You don't know where I'm going to go. And I don't care nothing about what the rest you got to say after you didn't send me and my mama to hell. I can't hear you telling me I'm stupid. What I believe don't matter. I don't want your God. And God saying you ain't getting my heaven. Because you're not part of me either. So as you calling somebody a hellion, y'all may be sitting next to each other. We are not to say or do things, though they may not be on the subject of religion, designed to disgust or offend people. I can't just offend you and disgust you and throw Jesus' name on top of it. I can't do that. That's not for his sake. 
But if in the faithful endeavor to be Christians we are loathed, as our master was, then we are to take it with patience and to remember that thousands before us have been treated in like manner. The question is how many of us have really, truly, been insulted, falsely accused, and persecuted for the sake of God? I mean, a, a real poll. How many? Or has it been our own doing of why we're loathed? And people are disgusted with us. Is it really for the sake of Christ? When we are persecuted, we are to be meek, patient, humble, not angry, not berating, not endeavoring to do good to our persecutors and slander people. Because then when people don't want what we have, we get to talking about them. Oh, pray for them. They just don't want the truth. Oh, they, they can't even figure out Jesus is God. They don't want the Holy Ghost. They don't want what you got. That's what they don't want. Maybe the true spirit they would like to have. <laughs> but the spirit you've given out, no, I don't want that. Hmm. In this, if we can have meekness and patience and humbleness and not berate and not slander people, many can be convinced of the power and the excellence that religion, which the one they're persecuting and insulting, can bring them. They have seen that nothing else but Christianity could impart such patience and meekness to the persecuted and have by these means been constrained to submit themselves to the gospel of Jesus. Have you been in your efforts to bring someone to Christ that meek, that patient, that loving and that kind so that they have no choice but to say, I've got to get what you have. That it don't have to be a race. I don't have to convert you in one sentence or one conversation. That I can give God time to do his work. Because this is not about me. But we've taken on supposedly renting people for Christ as our work. I'm simply supposed to just throw out what I know about the good Lord. Let him do it. Because he's bringing people in on his time. He's working the plan in his time. It ain't my time. I don't choose when someone gets to come and get saved. That's not my choice. But we get offended. I've been talking to them for two weeks. Oh, they've been to church three times. They ain't came down yet. You ready yet? Well, how many times you gonna come? Well, you know I ain't coming back. How about that? Then, then the people leave and don't want to come back. Then we, well, they just don't want Jesus. No, they didn't want what you had to offer. 2 Timothy 2, 23 through 26. It says, again, I say, don't get involved in foolish arguments, which only upset people and make them angry. God's people must not be quarrelsome. They must be gentle, patient teachers of those who are wrong. 
Be humble when you are trying to teach those who are mixed up concerning the truth. For if you talk meekly and courteously to them, they are more likely, with God's help, to turn away from their wrong ideas and believe what is true. Then they will come to their senses and escape from Satan's trap of slavery to sin, which he uses to catch them whenever he likes. And then they can begin doing the will of God. We need to post that on the front of the church buildings. Maybe this needs to be what we put out. He told us how to win, folks. Why are we doing the complete opposite? 2 Timothy 2, 23 through 26. The complete opposite. He didn't make a guideline, didn't make it clear. This is how you win the folks. Oh, no, his way ain't going to work. Let me show him. Knocking on folks' doors, harassing them. Never falsely accuse others of slander and persecution when you are the one being offensive and quarrelsome. Don't falsely put that on people, saying they're against God. They're trying to tear down the, the, the preaching. They're trying to destroy Christianity. No, it's just you. You are not representing Christ, nor are you showing forth the character of Christ. Remember, we're supposed to have the face of Christ. People were supposed to see the Jesus that walked them 33 years in us. It would behoove us to go figure out who that man was. How did he talk to people? How did he deal with them? Like really look into not just the stories, but take a look at his character how he performed, how he acted, how he treated people. This is what he was trying to teach us. And we've made them all little stories. Christianity has become a, a folklore. Stuff we pass on, tell, but there's no power in it. There's no transforming you know, change in our lives from what he was trying to say, look, do as I do. Treat the people as I treat them. Show them love the way I showed them love. He was God. He had the right to be upset if someone rejected him since he put breath in their nostrils, since he was keeping them going day by day, and he was not offended. He knew who he was. Why do we take so much power in ourselves as if we saving people? And they got the nerve to just be offensive and rude. No kingdom for you. So, to sum up the blessings, we need to embody being poor in spirit. Mourning our sins, having meekness, hungering and thirsting after Christ, being merciful, pure in heart, being a peacemaker, Willing to be persecuted, insulted, and falsely accused for his sake. Blessed are these traits. This is when you're blessed. 
If we can embody these traits, we will receive the kingdom of heaven, comfort from God, inherit the earth, be filled by God, have mercy shown to us, see God face to face, and then be called the sons of God. You decide. He could have just requested the trait and gave us nothing in return. He could have said, this is what you do. I'm the God, I decide. But he orchestrated this walk so that we can have benefits for our actions. That's kindness. That he said, okay, look, if you do this, I'll give you that. If you do, okay, because he knew we needed that. He knew we needed a little, you know, something to keep us going. Outlined it nice and pretty. It's very clear. It wasn't trickery in the words. It's really not that complicated. We have read the Beatitudes over and over and over again as if they don't have meaning. Blessed is the dumb, blessed is the dumb. But we haven't really taken them on. I have to become poor in spirit. I have to literally mourn my sins. Otherwise, I don't get the blessing. And this is why we're not happy. See, we always act like God didn't want us to be happy. When blessing means happy, you'll be happy then. This is how you get happiness. You want happiness? I'm willing to give you happiness right here on earth. Just do these little traits. Then you're happy. Godly happy. And spiritually prosperous. It's really not complicated. It is time for us to grow up in God and truly become like Christ. We have sat around long enough on the sidelines hoping and praying that God will accept our mediocrity. That's our hope. Lord, just take what I got to give you and bless me. I'm blessed. You're not blessed. And highly favor. I can't even call you the son of God. I can't even say you're going to see me face to face. How are you favored? It's not a slogan. It wasn't supposed to be a cliche. It was supposed to be true living. His stuff was real. These words are supposed to become life. It's power in them. We act like we cherish the word of God, but we really don't. It's not, it's, it's not our food. We, we don't believe that, that we don't live by bread alone. We, we, we need to quit quoting that. Every word that, you ain't living by the words that proceed out of his mouth. You ain't even done him. How you living by him? Your hamburger is more important than that Bible. Be honest. We have to transform our minds and say, these words are powerful. They were supposed to become life for me. This is where my life was supposed to begin. Not just me being able to quote them and say where they're found. We've been doing that 
for how many years? We quote them, it, it don't mean nothing. Because we've said it too many times. We just throw in the scripture to fit in the occasion. And that makes us feel saved. Well, I know the Bible. You might as well quote Jack and Jill. It's just as powerful for you. Where's the, the production of God's word in your life? Where's the transformation? Without that, you can't say you're his. We need to stop saying we're his. It's an insult to him. I'm saying I'm God's child, I look like Jesus, and I'm acting the fool. Being nothing like my Lord. And he's going to accept it? And he's going to take me to heaven? I don't think it's going to happen. I'm just going to live my life based on the fact that's not going to happen. That he's not going to accept my mediocrity. That he's not going to say, okay, well, you knew some scriptures. Good for you. And you get to come to heaven. I don't think he's going to accept that. It's time for us to impress God with our work and truly become one with him. So much one that he sees himself in us. Like I said last night, if he was standing in front of you, would he say, I see me? Are we really a reflection of Christ? And where you know you're not a reflection, that's where we got to work. That's where we got to do the work. If Jesus is standing here, I need him to say, oh, you me. Look at that. Wow. Now, then we will partake in that mystery of the oneness. When we allow God to accomplish in us the true oneness of the scriptures. Where I can truly say, me and Jesus are one. That's the mystery. For us human mortals to become one with the Almighty. Only can be done if we take on his character. And we act and perform how he does. Otherwise, we have been wasting our time. God's view or yours view, what do you choose? Will you be blessed the way he says blessings can come? Or will you accept your view and say this is all I have to give? Your choice.